Well, good evening and welcome again to the Neighborhood Church. So glad that you joined us. You're tuning in online or listening sometime later. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. It's toward the end of your Bible. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9 in just a few moments. But for now, I want to remind you that last week we kicked off a sermon series as we do each year on our core practices. So shout out to Toby for kicking us off with our first core practice, which is to follow Jesus. Tonight we're going to be spending some time with our second core practice, which is to love neighbor. Now we use the word practice instead of values or visions, because practices implies that we're doing it, that we're living it. However imperfectly, the idea is that our faith is not just meant to be believed, it's meant to be lived. Now everybody can roll their eyes and groan at that preacher play on words. Believing is important, it's vital. But our belief informs our behavior. Is that bad too, Emily? Write down this notes. These are gold. Our faith is meant to be lived. This is most evident in our first two practices. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that we're called to love and follow and give our whole lives to him, what's going to happen is that's going to make you, inform you, empower you to love others, loving God and loving neighbor. These are two sides of the same coin. In fact, the ongoing conversation in Jesus's day, as Jaron mentioned earlier, is to whittle down all the 613 Jewish commandments, like what's the tippy top greatest hits? And the conversation that Jesus had with an expert in the law whittled it down to these. The first is a famous prayer called the Shema. Can y'all say Shema? I love to say that word. It's Hebrew for the word here. Because in Deuteronomy 6, it has a prayer that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is a prayer that they're supposed to pray morning, noon, and night, and in their comings and in their goings. This evening, we have my grandfather here. Today's his 92nd birthday. Amen, hallelujah. I've got a couple aunts here that love him and take, him, uh, take care of him so well. My dad's here, and they've gone in and out of his apartment there in North Dallas, and I bet you the next time you walk through those halls, you're going to notice on some of those doors a little vial tilted in the doorframe. It's called a mezuzah, and it has in that vial on those doorposts the words of the Shema prayer. Every time they walk by, they see Jewish households because they're supposed to know it and breathe it and pray it and hear it and live it. So in the conversation about what's the greatest commandment, that's a good common answer. And so what Jesus does in conversation is to take that, to love God with everything, and then he mixes it, mashes it up with another law in Leviticus, which is to love your neighbor as what? Yourself. So he puts them together and says, it's two sides of the same coin. 
There is no commandment greater than these. They're inseparable. We'll never outgrow it, outlearn it. If you're in the retirement home in North Dallas and you walk past your door, you better pray that prayer and remember that you're to love God with everything and that informs your behavior to love your neighbor as yourself. One way that we say it in our church is this. A step toward God always leads to a step toward neighbor. If you step toward God and open yourself up to his tenderness and love, you're going to be formed and transformed and extend that love as Jaron and Kelly so beautifully put earlier in our worship gathering. You're going to reflect that to the world around you. Or another way we say it at our church is this. The love of God is working in you if love of neighbor is flowing out of you. Two sides, same coin. Later in the New Testament book of 1 John, he says, nobody can love God and hate their neighbor. And we say, dude, have you been on social media? Because a lot of people will be diligent to read the Bible and to have faithful church attendance and they go out and they make a mess of things and they hate others and they spew violence and racism They say they love God and they turn around and hate their neighbor. And John says nobody really knows the love of God if they go around hating those made in his image. Two sides, same coin. On the other end of the spectrum, we can't really love sacrificially, diligently, indiscriminately. We can't really love like God without being connected to the source of love and life. We can't really love our neighbor no matter who they are without being connected to the source of love, two sides, same coin. I'm not saying that non-Christians and other people can't love. They do. But what about the kind of love that turns the other cheek and loves an enemy? That's got to be something they've learned and been formed from the source. Two sides, same coin. So last week, we looked at follow Jesus. Tonight, we're looking at love neighbor. And in order to do that and to illustrate how it's two sides of the same coin, we're going to pick up where Toby left off last week in the same passage she landed on. And I'm going to pick up the rest of the interaction that Jesus had with some people that thought they loved God, but they hated their neighbors. And watch this remarkable shift in what I'm about to read. Last week, Toby talked about how Jesus said, hey, Matthew, follow me. And then notice that in the next sentence, Jesus follows Matthew. Where does Jesus follow Matthew? Jesus follows Matthew into his world, into his relationships, and toward a table. Jesus follows us into our worlds, with our neighbors. And the question for us today is, will we make room at those tables and invite the presence of Jesus to transform our world and our relationships with our neighbors? Watch how Jesus follows Matthew and shares a table with the excluded. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. This is on the screen. So as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. You want to hear more? Go back and listen to Toby's message last week. But verse 10, 
While Jesus was having dinner at where? Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And watch what Jesus does. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes the Old Testament law to the experts in Old Testament law. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. A few years ago, Amy went to L.A. with Kristen, who was singing here earlier. And her highlight was a jaunt through Skid Row to see this place called Homeboy Industries. Raise your hand if you've heard of Homeboy Industries. Homeboy Industries is the largest gang intervention ministry on the planet. He's received the California Peace Prize, medals from presidents, a Jesuit priest named Greg Boyle was a Catholic parish priest in and amongst the largest projects west of the Mississippi. And in the late 80s, as gangs were coming to prominence, and he started to ride his bike through the poorest and most violent neighborhoods of Los Angeles, he saw all these kids coming around, having left school, dropped out of school, been kicked out of school, and he said, if I found you a school that would take you, would you go? And they said, yeah, I guess. Well, he couldn't find one, so they started one. And a bunch of nuns at his parish gave up some of their space in their convent so that these kids who were their neighbors could have school. The thing is, when you graduate school, you need a job. And so they said, who's going to hire these guys with tattoos all over their forehead? And, and they're violent. They have records. They've been in juvenile hall. And so they started a job training and placement program. So in the late 80s and early 90s, this begins to get the attention of the broader county because during the Rodney King riots, when all of these areas are exploding, there's this little pocket in this area where the most violent folks every other season weren't destroying their spaces were they angry? Yes. Were they wanting change? Yes. But there was something that was different enough to where they started to ask what was going on here. And so they ran an article in the LA Times and they said, how is this like looking transformed? And so he shared about how you give them a shared purpose and you begin to put them in the same space and tell them they're valuable and they're wanted and they're loved by God. And they see all these different kinds of people, nuns and priests, alongside them and it transformed them and elevated them. And this struck a chord with a very wealthy person that was adjacent to the Hollywood entertainment industry. And the day after that article ran, he called up Father Greg Boyle and said, I've got $50 million. Do you think you could know how to spend it? And this priest had a business plan that went this far. Um, I guess we'd buy the abandoned bakery across the street 
and start giving them a job after their job training. And then he says, done. And they bought it and they refurbished and fixed the ovens. And he said, it was the only thought I had because I wanted to see what happened when we put rival gang members in hairnets in front of an oven together for a common purpose, a common mission, and to see what happens when they share space in the same place because he said this, it's really hard to demonize someone once you know them. That's loving neighbor. That's why Amy and Kristen drove through Skid Row to go get some sweatpants for the girls that said homeboy and a pound cake from the bakery. They have about 120,000 people come through their doors every year, which is good because there's about 80,000 people active in gangs in L.A. County. But he's talking about the dignity of each person that walks through the door and greeting them as a neighbor to be loved, not an enemy to be feared. And he takes these two rival gang members and those two and those two and he puts them in hairnets or he puts them in the t-shirt screen printing area and he says, watch what happens when you get to know each other and share a space at a table or an oven or a screen printer. Jesus calls blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth Jewish young men to join his kingdom movement. And then as they're approaching the place where Matthew lived, they see the border, the boundary, and they see the familiar tax collector's booth to pay the toll to come in and do this or that. And they probably saw that tax booth and they got that same like sour look and that cringe because they know they're about to get cleaned out and take it in the shorts. Because as Toby reminded us last week, the tax collectors took a little off the top and they were exploiting their friends. But these blue collar... Salt of the earth, Jewish fishermen, saw that guy slipping some money to the oppressors at Rome. And they didn't just see him as a guy that was milking them. They saw him as a guy that was a traitor, an enemy. Imagine their surprise when Jesus says, hey, come and follow me. And then Peter and Andrew, who were just called in Matthew 4, are looking around saying, what did we sign up for? How long are we going to be hitched to this guy's wagon, this traitor, this thief? And it's just as if I got to imagine Jesus looking back at Peter and Andrew and saying, remember when that guy asked me about the greatest commandment? Remember when he said, "Uh, who is my neighbor anyway? Who am I really supposed to love? I wonder if Jesus pointed to Matthew and said, Guys like this. Matter of fact, Matthew, you got any friends or plans for dinner tonight? Let's go see who Matthew kicks it with. And Jesus puts on hairnets and puts them down in front of an oven and says, let's work this thing out together. No, they share a table. Who is my neighbor? That guy? Her? One of the things we love to say at our church, and we've been saying since we became the neighborhood church in 2016, is that Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. Whatever boundary marker that's the that guy, her, him, Jesus says, oh, they're on the line that you won't cross to love or share space with. Well, we better move this line. And he picks it up 
and he puts it to where all those that are ostracized and demonized and on the outside are all of a sudden squarely within the boundaries of who God loves and is calling us to love as well. So now, everyone we encounter, our enemies, yeah, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Our persecutors, I say to you, bless your persecutors. Those people, now everyone we encounter is a neighbor to be loved. The neighbor that sleeps in the bed next to you or down the hall, the neighbor that's next door or half a world away because Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood and it's really hard to demonize the other when you're put in contact and called to love them as you would love yourself. Maybe that's how the world would be changed. So in our church, we've been trying to live up to our name since 2016. To believe that Jesus really did rezone our neighborhood and that every single person we encounter should be met with dignity and love. And be invited to life with Jesus and life within our community. And so we say that we commit to love others as ourselves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, or status. And if there is any other qualifier you can imagine, just go ahead and add it onto the list. That was just the ones we could name or think of when we started this. And so a thought experiment for us is to read that prayerfully, honestly, and say, which one stings the most? That's the one the Holy Spirit might be nudging you to re-examine and surrender, because if you follow Jesus long enough, a step toward him is going to lead to a step toward that person. And what the world does not need is more Christians who profess godliness with their mouth and reject our neighbor in his name. They can't see your beliefs, but they see how you treat them at work. They can't see your theology, but they see how you listen. They hear what you say about that people group and those foreigners or that accent or that trans person or that this or the other. And we listen in our own hearts and in our circles and we wait for that cringe moment and we hear Jesus say, yeah, them too. You gotta love them too. The tax collector, the sinner. When we see enemy, traitor, sinner, foreigner, someone who's too liberal or too conservative, Jesus sees a neighbor to be loved. And we say, that's too hard. And I say, uh-huh, exactly. Which is why we remain connected to the source of love and give our whole selves to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then and only then will love of neighbor be possible. Because it's really easy to love Mavericks fans for me. But it's really hard to love Spurs fans or Heat fans. You get my dumb gist? Amen and amen. It's easier now because the Spurs are terrible. 
in calling us to love our neighbors as ourselves, Jesus is inviting us not to build higher walls, but to set longer tables. This is the big idea for the evening. And this is really important because the Pharisees of Jesus' day were really good at building walls. Y'all may not know this, but the Pharisees were an unofficial pressure group. Some of them were priests. Some of them were experts in the law, but not many of them. It's like the moral majority. Some of you remember the moral majority? That's not like an official card-carrying thing, but it's a loose affiliation of religious people that wanted to impose their beliefs onto a political system or onto people groups, and they spanned different places and denominations. The Pharisees were like a, uh, more like a philosophical group of people that subscribe to the similar way of reading the law and saying who's in and who's out. They were really good at building walls. They thought that they would usher in the reign of God by strict, perfect, rigorous morality. And then Jesus comes in and says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, turn and follow me, and you'll find love and peace and life and forgiveness. And then he goes and sits down with the people who needed love and peace and healing and forgiveness. Who needs forgiveness? The people who think they don't have any sins to confess and they're perfect and righteous? Or the people who know that they know that life has beat them up and they need someone to restore them? So Jesus sets a longer table. And the Pharisees have a fundamental conflict with Jesus because sinners are the people that belong on the other side of our wall. They're unclean. They didn't wash their hands the right way. They're not allowed to go here because they weren't born from the right family. And then all of a sudden you see Jesus touching those who are unclean and inviting people who had no more family to belong to a kingdom family. And the fundamental conflict was how they treated these sinners. Understand that the word sinner is not just moral, okay? So when we're reading the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter, sometimes it's about the people that do a sin, to put it crudely, to hate, murder, your garden variety, like, laundry list of, like, the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it means that. Sometimes it means, for the Pharisees, a technical term. They're a sinner because they're not adhering to the law the way I think you ought to adhere to the law. There are things about washing hands in the Old Testament, and they would say, Actually, it really means you need to use this dove soap and it needs to be for 20 seconds like a CDC thing and it has to be this. And if you don't do it exactly like that, you're a sinner. No morality there at all. It's a technical designation that says you're not doing the religion the way me as a religious person thinks you ought to be doing the religion. So sinners and tax collectors 
could be church-going, temple-going Jews that just didn't do it the way that the people shouting them down on Twitter think they should do it. You catch my drift? So Jesus probably is eating with some classic, like, thieving, prostituting, like, adultering, murdering roughnecks, but also some people that are just kind of like not that into church. And Jesus sits at a table and says, what do you think, Matthew? Can we squeeze everybody in here? And the Pharisees have this conflict because for them, it's about exclusion. But listen, for Jesus, who's going to have an opportunity for transformation, restoration, and life? if they're not even allowed into the room. So Jesus's way is not of exclusion, but transformation, an opportunity to get the sick into the hospital where the Pharisees wanted to keep them in quarantine over there. So Jesus goes and touches the leper, touches the woman with the bleeding, and you can read in Matthew 8 and 9, all the people they wanted at arm's length, Jesus says, pull up a chair, I've got some food for you here. I've come for the sick who actually need a doctor. You guys are hoarding all the medicine over there in your temple. They could never come within five feet to get it. But the reign of God has come to them, and I'm inviting my people to be a boundary-crossing, reconciling people that set longer tables, not higher walls. You know, like the church in America today. Or is it? So, this brings us to the point that who you are willing to share a table with says a lot about the God you believe in. The Pharisees would not share a table with the Matthews and Mary Magdalene's of the world because their God needed a bean-counting exact perfection to sit at a table with someone. And then Jesus comes as the living, breathing embodiment of the unseen God and starts to touch the untouchable and starts to sit down with the foreigners and the outcasts. The God that Jesus knows is the God that you see throughout the pages of the Bible progressing and moving step by step beyond the kinds of walls that we build. The Bible is a story, I believe, whose main character is a boundary-crossing, reconciling God. Let me give you one example I don't have a whole lot of time, but I would love for you to make note of and do some study yourself. Write down, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy, good luck spelling it, 23.3. Deuteronomy 23.3 is a part of some miscellaneous commands about who to marry and who not to marry. And in Deuteronomy 23.3, it says, you shall not invite an Ammonite or a Moabite into the assembly, not their descendants, to the 10th generation. I don't want these people around. They didn't take care of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. So kick those Moabites and Ammonites up out of here. I don't want anything to do with them. Deuteronomy 23.3. Put that on a bumper sticker. Now, the book of Ruth 
The first few verses talks about a family, a good, upstanding Jewish family that has experienced a famine and they go to a country called Moab. And then their kids get old enough and these two sons, they marry two women who are locals. What is someone from Moab called? A Moabite. So one of them marries a Moabite named Ruth. That's in the first few verses of Ruth. And then you get to chapter 4, and you see how Ruth is the perfect example for the Jewish people of steadfast faithfulness and bravery and loyalty. And at the end, she's married after her husband died, and she took this brave and powerful journey. And then she has a kid who is the great-great-grandfather of the greatest king of Moab, of Israel. She is David's grandma. And someone says, excuse me, Deuteronomy 23 says, no descendants of Moabites shall be allowed in the assembly. And literally, the songs sung in the assembly called Psalms were written by a descendant of a Moabite. Tell me that God is not moving and progressing and boundary crossing and reconciling all the nations to himself, setting a longer table. Well, we're a literalist and the Bible is God's word. Ruth or Deuteronomy? The answer is yes. Different times, different places. You keep following and keep listening and he will keep surprising you and moving you forward. This is what's happening throughout scriptures. You want another example? Hosea 6.6. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Dude, what about all those chapters about sacrifices? Ah, that's fine. But... Don't tell me you love God if you're not going to be merciful. Hello? Isaiah 1, 11 through 20. I'm so sick of your religious festivals and your offerings. I'm like drowning in bull blood. I'm over it. Just love the oppressed. Romans 13, 10, we read earlier. Love your neighbor. You shall not commit adultery. Here's a thought. Just love your neighbor as yourself. It fulfills the whole thing. Galatians 5, 14. Love is the fulfillment of the law. This is where God is bringing the whole project. It's not to say that the Old Testament is irrelevant. It's saying this is the particular people at this particular time, but God wants a big old family. And so at the right time, he's starting to welcome and invite so many others to the table. The conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees is what is really essential to live our faith. To build a wall or to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly, and to invite others to the table. So let me land the plane like this. When the Pharisees ask, why is your teacher eating with all of the wrong people? Jesus' response is implicitly, why aren't you? And so I say to our church, our little church, our little church loved 256 neighbors in three hours this morning. Because 54 people came, 
and shopped for all those that couldn't come. And 54 people got shoes and a smiling face and prayer and dignity and encouragement and toiletries that you raised money for. And I say that our little church, who cares? Love the one in front of you. If it's one person, do it. Because it can transform, if not the world, their day, their moment, their perception of a God who might actually want to be with them. Can we just love people for free sometimes? And I feel like the church is saying, well, you know, why are you rubbing elbows with these people? And we say, because Jesus would. We want to be where he's at. We want to sit at his table. And so that's why we started in 2019 this this thing called the neighborhood table. We wanted to set a longer table because we thought, what would happen if we had more time with our neighbors? And what would our communities look like if we literally broke bread together and sat across the table from people who will never come to this room? But if they're not going to come to that room, uh, this room, can we go to that room? And we tell a short story about Jesus. We say, if you want to stick around, we're going to tell a story about Jesus in English and Spanish. And we set the table and see what happens. And people stay. And they hear about Jesus who would want to be eating with them. And they hear about grace and love and goodness. And the other thing is we went out, you remember, and bought a bunch of tablecloths and plates, and it's so obnoxious. Matt Major would take home buckets and bins full of scraped and dirty plates. We'd run them through our dishwashers because having real plates and a real tablecloth and a real loaf of bread to break and eat and everybody sits together makes it feel less like a soup kitchen and more like a family reunion. And when you can sit across from somebody that you drove past on Jupiter and would have never seen, and you sit across from someone and you begin to show up and listen, and then you realize maybe it's hard to demonize a person once I know their story, once I know what they come from. And so one of the things, and we learned this when Bill and Sherry went to Seattle from a movement in downtown Seattle called the Dinner Church Movement, they came back and they said, no fish bowling allowed. Fish bowling is when you can just kind of sit there and look in at the aquarium and say, look at that. That's a good, that's a good dinner right there. He said, no, no, no. You serve it, and then everybody eats. I don't care if you don't like Stouffer's lasagna. It's on the menu this Friday, baby. Come and have some. But the idea is that we might set a table and set loose the presence of Jesus in our midst and dare to believe that everyone we encounter is a neighbor to be loved, not someone to be feared or ostracized, and just see without expectations. And so we were having about a third of our people and then two-thirds of our neighbors. Look out here. There's not two-thirds of our neighbors. Lord willing, who knows, maybe someday, but for maybe one Friday a month, Can we go share the love of Jesus and practice what we're preaching? Because to love neighbor is a practice, not just a belief. And that's one space in which we can do it. If you can't make it, that's okay. How are you going to love someone in your roof and at your table? One story many of you have heard as I close is this. One of those evenings, we had a person come after the meal was in progress. And one of the things we like to do too is have live music. So I was in there strumming my guitar, just as background like vibes. 
And I started to notice that Amy and the girls and a couple people were like walking out and going to the lobby of the community center where we have this meal. And then I come to find out later that somebody walked in that was in transition. It's a person that was born male and is transitioning to a female. The kind of person that a lot of people in our world would have a lot of opinions about. And that's fine. That's okay. But in this moment, my wife sees this person and says, hey, you can come in. We've got food here. And this person says, no, I, uh, and him and Han and said, I don't want to scare the kids. And so my wife with Emma and Nora right here says, hey, girls, are you scared? And they say, no, what? She goes, not scared. You want to eat? And then after some coaxing, I see to-go plates getting filled and people moving kind of back and forth, bringing stuff out to the lobby. So I'm sitting there doing the church thing, playing, and I'm saying, why are they messing up this thing right now? We're doing the church thing in here. Where are they going? Isn't it fun to be a pastor's wife and pastor's kid? You're like, they need to be in here. And I see them, and only later do I realize, oh, they're doing the church thing. And so after some convincing, this person says, thank you. I haven't had a full meal in three days. And I just thought, what would happen if we led with love? What would happen if we started from a place of, how can we help? How can we listen? How can we set a place at the table? Instead of categorizing and philosophizing, here's a person in front of us, how do I love? However imperfectly we do it. Think about your tables. The tables under your roof with your neighbors there. The tables you share with your circles of people at school and work. Think of those people outside of your zones that make you think there's no way I can love this person. And then imagine that Jesus is following you like he followed Matthew. And he wants to seat squarely there with them. And say, hey, I'm here with you. Let's bring these neighbors into contact with his life-giving and restoring presence. Because if you read Matthew 8 and 9, you see healing story, healing story, healing story, blind man sees, healing story, leprosy cured. And then you see this little thing where Matthew shares a table with someone who saw him for the first time. And make no mistake about it, this is a healing story for Matthew. And it happened over a table. And may we be people who have a long table in our community to be loving and to greet each person with dignity and to love them as we would love ourselves. Amen and amen. All right. Our benediction tonight is by our good friend Aubrey Smith. May God enable us to see his precious image etched within every human we meet. May we receive with open hands the inexpressible love of God for our own selves and extend those same hands to those who long for such love. May the Spirit of God cleanse our hearts from hidden superiority, bigotry, and fear. And may our hearts be quick to repent in humility. 
May we be a community with the mind of Christ, relinquishing our power to give dignity to the weak, honoring those the world despises, and sacrificially loving others more than we love our own status or reputation. May our hearts reflect God's own heart for the foreigner, for people of color, for the poor, for the outsiders. May God establish us as his kingdom of priests who bless those the world has cursed and embracing them as we ourselves have been embraced in Christ. Go in peace.